The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. So if you please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. And the Pewback Bibles in front of you, that's on page 764. And then we'll actually have a double feature, two readings. The second reading will be from John chapter 17, and that's on page 849. So first, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. I almost forgot to mention, if you don't own a Bible, uh, please feel free to take the Bible that's uh, in the pew back in front of you as a gift from Park Church. Matthew chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And then flip over to John chapter 17, page 849 verses 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one." I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jared. Good morning. It's good to see you all. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here at Park Church. I want to say welcome to all of you. Um, Like Bailey mentioned, if you're A member here or a regular attender, we'd love to get to know you and uh, talk with you about some teams and opportunities to serve the church if you're not currently serving. But if you're new here, I want to say welcome to you in particular as well. Um, Right after the service, we have a short meeting. It takes about 10 minutes where we get to know you a little bit, share a little bit about who we are, what we're doing, and share with you some opportunities to get more involved in our community. If that would help you out in any way, we'd love to get to know you. So that's right after the service. There's a room in the back corner of the gallery over there, and it says new here. And again, we'll take about 10 minutes to get to know you. Um, I'm steadily losing my voice, and that killer worship didn't help me. I'm like, I'm not going to sing. I'm just going to mouth it the whole time. And I just couldn't help it the whole time. So I'm going to be sipping on some tea uh, all, all morning here, and we'll make it through as best we can. Um, <clears throat> speaking of, we um, are in the middle of a four-part series. We're in part three called Living as the Family of God. And in this series, we're exploring what it means to relate to one another as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. What does it mean for us to relate to one another 
as brothers and sisters in, in this family, a family that God's building from people from different families, different tribes, different backgrounds, different nations, different experiences. What does it mean to live and relate together as the family of God? And so two weeks ago, <clears throat> Jason preached a message where he talked about what anthropologists and psychologists call family systems. Essentially in the Bible, what we're seeing is that we are formed as human beings in a context of relationships that your parents, your guardians, the relationships around you form a relational environment that affects your formation. It affects your values. It affects aspects of your personality. It affects aspects of the way you think about different realities, the way you engage and relate in the midst of conflict or disagreement, the way you think about what to prioritize in your own life, what, what and who you need to be in order to be accepted or to be loved. That's shaped in an environment. And that's normal. It's actually a part of God's design. And in God's design, parents that reflect his love and his authority actually create a value in an environment that can shape you in really healthy ways. But like every family, there's both beauty and brokenness. And there are ways in which your family system that you grew up in might have misrepresented something of God's character and leadership. And so as you become a follower of Jesus, there are things that we need to unlearn that we learned about a way of dealing with conflict or who we need to be to be loved, that we need to relearn in the family of Jesus what does it mean to think about conflict. In the family of Jesus, what does it mean to engage with differences? In the family of Jesus, how do we think about forgiveness and reconciliation? In the family of Jesus, how do we be honest about our thoughts and our opinions while respecting the thoughts and the opinions of others? How do we relate in that kind of environment? Jesus has a way of doing these things. And as disciples of Jesus, we we are called to be learning to follow his way of life, learning to follow his design for the way we relate in relationships. Last week, Neil talked about this idea of loving presence, that because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God, we push away from his love and his authority and his healthy leadership over us, and we start trying to carve out our own path towards value and love and acceptance, and it leads to incredible insecurity that runs through all of us. All of us have like embedded within us deep insecurities as we're trying to figure out who do we need to be to be accepted and loved. All the while, there's a God that's ready to love and accept us and to welcome us into his family, but we're forging our own path towards that. And so it leads to a lot of insecurity. We call, we call that anxiety. Leads to this sense of like, I need to adapt and change who I am to fit in to this family or to fit into this small group or to fit into this church or to fit into this classroom or to fit into this workplace. I feel this pressure that aspects of who I am clash with aspects of other people. And we feel this relational anxiety that either makes us want to push away from relationships or change the way people think or attack others or demean others or exalt ourselves or feel personal shame, whatever it might be. And when you meet Jesus and you experience his love, his grace, his humility, his compassion, his gentleness, it it can slowly begin to seep into your own heart where you're so secure in the love of God that you can offer loving presence to other people without needing to conform who you are, adapt who you are, that you can actually be who you are while loving and receiving and accepting people that are frustrated with you or have confronted you or have a different opinion than you or think differently about the world than you, that you can actually love and honor and care for them the more and more you experience the love of Christ. And so as Christians, we are learning how to be with Jesus and to follow his way of life. And part of his way of life is how we relate to one another. What we're looking at today is kind of another step in that direction where what does it mean to relate to one another with the the differences that we bring into this space? 
As brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, God's pulling together a family of people from different backgrounds, cultures, experiences, families, kind of environments, different places in the country, people from urban contexts and suburban contexts and rural contexts, immigrants coming into this space, joining our family, people coming from different socio-political backgrounds, people coming from different economic backgrounds. We all come together into this space and we're learning what does it mean to be a family of God here with all the differences we carry into it. And my conviction from Jesus, and we'll look at it today, is that the differences we carry into this space are not a threat to Christian unity, but it's a real asset. And Jesus calls us to see the differences we bring into this space as an asset that can show more of his glory, more of his beauty, more of his radiance. So we'll need the Holy Spirit to help us this morning. So would you join me as we pray and ask God to work among us? Um, Jesus, even now, uh, we confess that we need you. And we're so grateful that we're not alone today, that we're not alone in this space, that you haven't left us to figure this out on our own. Jesus, that you came into this world. You revealed to us the glory of the Father. You revealed to us the love of the Father. You demonstrated the love of God while we were still sinners. You died for us. And then you rose again the third day to give us power over all of the sin, the death, the brokenness that we experience. Now you've given us your Holy Spirit, and so we pray, Holy Spirit, you would work in powerful, beautiful ways among us today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. As I list off some of these things, I want you to think about the different emotions you've felt over the past few years around issues related to things like masks. You want a church that's wearing masks or not wearing masks, that's loving your neighbor or cowering to the government, you know? Uh, what, what do you think about issues of politics and voting? Are you a Republican voter, a Democratic voter, an independent voter, and I vote for Jesus or I don't vote kind of person? Do you vote for the gray wolves or not the gray wolves? You know, it's important questions. Div- divisive things. When you think about a, a church environment, do you like short kind of homilies or do you like park church? Um, <clears throat> Do you, uh, do you wish your church would be more liturgical and higher church form prayers or more charismatic, more emotional, more passionate? Do you prefer loud contemporary worship or do you prefer, prefer kind of traditional hymns? When you think about your small group, do you wish your small group was just studying Bible study week in and week out? Or do you wish you had more hangout nights or do you wish you had more worship and prayer nights? When you think about issues related to the church, do you wish your church would talk about social justice issues more often or do you wish your church would stick to the Bible more? When you think about an environment like this, do you wish it was kind of a smaller place where people knew each other more or maybe a bigger environment where we were doing more to impact the city? All these issues and more are issues that bring a lot of tension and disagreement. There's different opinions. Do you think the church is too intellectual or not deep enough? Too conservative? Too liberal? All these issues in this room today are people with different opinions. In the room today, right now, you're sitting in a room with different opinions on every single one of those issues, including the short sermon piece. Um, people are enduring it. Um, and so, so you, you come to this space with all these differences. And in our world, differences almost always lead to division. It's really hard for us to engage with people with different opinions. It's really hard for us to understand that. When you think about the past few years, 
the differences of perspective and background and thoughts that exist inside the body of Christ, inside and among churches, have led to such vitriolic and, and resentful divisions that have been incredibly painful for so many of you and for so many churches, bringing divisions that cut right through the heart of small groups, right through the heart of families, right through the heart of churches. And the question we're asking is, does Jesus have a better way? Does Jesus want us to be a place that perpetually divides over our differences? Or does Jesus call us to a better way, a way where we could find unity in the midst of those differences, unity in the midst of diversity? And my contention today from from God's word will be that he does have a better way and his way is beautiful if we can receive it and if we can learn to follow the way of Jesus. That we can learn as a community to follow his way of life and not the pattern set out by our culture or maybe the environment that you were raised in or whatever it might be that Jesus has a better way. So we're going to look at this from the word of God. We're going to walk through a lot of passages today. Um, And we'll start in Matthew 10, but I want to start with this basic observation. Jesus is building a family characterized by unity and diversity. Jesus is building a family of brothers and sisters that's characterized by both unity and diversity. Open your Bible to Matthew chapter 10. I'll have all of these scriptures today on the screen behind you, so if you don't want to flip to them, no sweat. You can just look at the screen behind me, and they'll be up there. But I do want you to see this in God's word, because I think it's really stunning and so countercultural and vital for us as a community. This is Jesus towards the beginning of his ministry, his three-year kind of public ministry, as he begins to call 12 apostles. And in Matthew chapter 10, Matthew the apostle is going to name the 12 that are being invited into Jesus' inner circle as his apostles. He says this, Matthew 10, verse 1, and he called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And the names of the 12 apostles were these. Now he's going to list off 12 names. He's going to give some like uh, quote unquote last names, like the names of some fathers uh, to help distinguish some people. But he's going to add three different kind of specific characteristics or attributes to, to three of the names. And I want you to pay attention to these kind of attributes that he decides to elaborate on. And the names of the 12 apostles were these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. The last one there, Judas Iscariot, everybody would have known. This is maybe 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Everybody knew of Judas Iscariot. He's a part of the lore of the story of Jesus, that one of Jesus' 12, this man named Judas, betrayed him. And so Matthew names that. But other than that, Matthew doesn't kind of give a description about the job or the background of anybody else besides two people. One of them is himself, Matthew. He names that he was a tax collector. He was a tax collector. He was a Jewish man who actually served as an employee of Rome to exact taxes from his own people, from the Jewish people. The other person is who? Simon, right? What's it say about Simon? Simon is what? A zealot. What's a zealot? A zealot is on as opposite side of the political spectrum as a tax collector could be. A zealot was an anti-Roman militant who saw his mission in life with another group, with a group of zealots, to violently and militantly overthrow the Roman oppression. And so Matthew decides, as he's listing out the 12 disciples, to name these these two features that Jesus is bringing into his inner community. Not a lot of people just like him. He's bringing into his inner community people from as far opposite sides of Judaism as you could get. Matthew, the tax collector, would have been seen as a traitor to the Jewish people, 
He'd been seen as somebody who had betrayed his own people, that was extorting his own people to pat his own pockets and compromise with their oppressors. Not only that, but religiously, his role as a tax collector would have been seen as a a moral offense because of which potentially the Messiah is not going to come back. If we don't get rid of these tax collectors and get them to change their ways or get out of here, then the Messiah won't come back because their thought was until we tidy ourselves up and get everything just right, God will never come and establish his kingdom. Now, Jesus entered into that because he didn't come to put together tidy people. He came to broken and lost people like Matthew, the tax collector. And so he invites Matthew, the tax collector, into his inner community. And then he also invites Simon the Zealot. If you put Matthew the tax collector and Simon the Zealot in a room, not with Jesus, it's bad news. Like somebody's going to get hurt and it's going to be Matthew. Uh, For sure. I don't know the size of these guys, but like zealots were trained, trained like militant special forces kind of Jewish people with incredible resentment, not just for the Romans, but for the tax collectors. And so Matthew's like, hey, Jesus is building a a community where a tax collector and a zealot can come into the same family and begin to operate and engage. On top of that, you have people from different backgrounds and as a part of this community, but as you watch the ministry of Jesus, it continues to kind of blow open these categories. Jesus will go to a Samaritan woman. Samaritans were seen as also compromisers who had battled against the Jewish people with the Hasmoneans in this kind of Maccabean revolt. They battled against the Jewish people, and so Samaritans were seen as compromisers. Jesus loved and accepts the Samaritan divorcee that would have been seen as a, a stigmatized, immoral Samaritan woman that would have been seen by the Jewish people as a dog. He invites her in to follow him. He he invites this Syrophoenician woman up north who would have been seen again as a Gentile dog is what the Jewish people would have called the Syrophoenicians. And he invites her in and shows her honor and welcomes her to the table. Then he blows everybody's mind and he talks about the faith of a Roman centurion, that a Roman centurion, the oppressor, is welcomed in because he believed in Jesus as Lord and believed that Jesus had the power to save and restore and heal. Samaritan's in. He loves and welcomes in a Roman guard into the community. Then he loves and welcomes in. You you think he's all against Pharisees. And all of a sudden, Nicodemus, he's talking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is compelled by Jesus. And eventually, you find out Nicodemus, the Pharisee, he's coming into the community. So you have religious elites. You have immoral outcasts. You have prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors and, and lepers and people that are hurting and pushed to the edges. And Jesus is pulling everybody in, the kind of people that would have never been in the same room together apart from the work of Jesus. He's pulling them all in. And he knew that that was going to create tension. He knew it so much that when you get to the very last night of his life before his crucifixion, we have this moment, this little glimpse into the heart of Jesus in John chapter 17. I want you to turn to John chapter 17. We'll have it on the screen again. If you don't want to turn there, it's fine. This is the upper room discourse. Jesus is talking to his disciples. Judas has now kind of gone out. He's about to get betrayed like within the next hour or so. Jesus is going to get betrayed by Judas. He's going to get arrested by the, by the Jewish temple leaders, handed over to Rome. He's going to be crucified and killed. This is all going to happen within the next maybe 14 hours. Jesus is going to be gone, off the scene, dead. In this moment, John gives us this beautiful window into the heart of Jesus, and we get what's called the high priestly prayer, which is Jesus interceding for his people before the Father. And so you get Jesus, the Son of God, praying to God the Father on behalf of you and I, people like us. The first part of the prayer, he's praying for his immediate apostles. And in verse 20, he shifts gears and he starts praying for all who would believe in him through the message of the apostles, which we have recorded for us in the scriptures here. And so look at John 17, verse 20. 
says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That includes people like us that have believed in Jesus through the written testimony of, of Christ from the apostles. Listen to what he prays. Here's what he's praying. This is last night. His last night on, uh, here in his earthly ministry before his crucifixion says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that, that's the purpose, here's why I want them to be one, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. If we want to understand if the world is going to believe that Jesus is the Son of God sent by the Father, loved by the Father, to welcome human beings into relationship with the Father, if the world's going to believe that, then they're, they're going to need to see the people of God as one, united. And the kind of unity that Jesus is praying is the kind of unity that he shares with the Father, which is not unity because of sameness. The Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Son. This is just Trinitarian theology, which is confusing if you're new to it. And if you've learned it for a long time, it's still really confusing. Um, But the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit's not the Father. But the Son is God. The Father's God. The Spirit's God. It's three in one. There's distinction, distinct persons of the Godhead, and there's unity, one God in three persons. The the unity that Jesus is praying for isn't a a uniformity. It's not a unity of sameness. It's where distinctive, unique people with differences are brought into one new family that can love and be united even in the midst of those differences. And he prays this moving on in that same passage. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be, become perfectly one, listen to the purpose again, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. The images of the Father loving the Son and the Spirit mediating this love of the Father to the Son, this kind of Trinitarian like community of love. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit with perfect, beautiful unity and love. And Jesus is saying, when we welcome them into that, my prayer, Father, is that you would allow them to experience our love so much that they show that love to one another so that the world will know that you've loved me and that the world loves that you love them. It's a beautiful prayer. Now, here's what, all my life I've read this prayer as like an incredible theological treatise. It's like, wow, this is like mind-blowing Trinitarian theology stuff. Like, what an incredible privilege we have. And I still feel that. But this morning when we were praying, I already planned to preach this passage, and I just had this image while we were praying, kind of listening prayer before the 9 a.m. service, we just take time and listen, God, is there anything you want to say? And this image came to mind of Jesus in this space, like on his knees, pleading and crying to the Father. That it wasn't this like pious, like, oh, Father, would you unite them and make them one just as we are one? Like in the kind of like uh, audio Bible kind of voice, like, um, but this like, God, please. It's it's like Jesus knew how hard this was going to be for us. It's like he saw Matthew, the tax collector, in the room. And he saw Simon, the zealot, in the room. And he's heard their interactions. He watched the way they treated the Samaritan woman. And Mary Magdalene's here. And he's watched the way they've treated prostitutes and people who have a, a hard, painful past. And he's watched the way those pasts continue to shape the people and their difficulty. It's like he has this sense of how hard this is going to be. And the night before his crucifixion, his, uh, the heaviest thing on his heart is that the people of God would be one. God, make them one. 
just like I'm one with you and you're one with me, just like you love me. Help them to, to know that love and to be so caught up in the love that we have for them and that I'm displaying for them, that you have for them, that, that, that they show that love and they show that oneness for one another. God, it's gonna be hard for them. Would you help? They're gonna need your help, Father. Father, the high priest, Jesus, the high priest, pleading with God the Father on our behalf, make them one. That Jesus wants us to experience unity in the midst of diversity. Again, it's not unity in the midst of sameness. There's distinctions. You know, unity built on sameness is a very fragile unity. It's very fragile. If you're united because you think the same, that is such a fragile unity. You know, it's way healthier is where you know that we're distinct people. I have thoughts, you have thoughts, they're not the same. We have different opinions, different perspectives, different backgrounds, different experiences. That means we have different thoughts about how we should approach this issue or what should be a priority in this situation or how should we think about this or how we even relate to one another. And learning to show love and unity in the midst of that kind of difference, those diversity of opinions, thoughts, backgrounds, cultures, ethnicities, that's a different kind of unity altogether. Do you know a marriage that's built on unity around sameness is a fragile kind of unity. Uh, often, marriages will come together with a lot of like unity around sameness, not all. But where things get healthier is when you realize, hey, we, we don't think the same. We don't have the same opinion about everything. We have different perspectives, and instead of seeing those as a threat, we've come to view those as an asset. My wife and I think differently about a lot of things, about the Bible, about politics, about different situations. We voted different about the gray wolves. Like, we cancel each other out in our household. We have different opinions, and we've learned to see that as, like, a really awesome thing. That was hard. That was a journey for us to feel like, hey, we can have different opinions about stuff, and it's okay. And we love and value that and see that as an asset and not a threat, not a liability. It's a healthier kind of unity. Same thing in your small group. The person that has a dissenting opinion about a theological perspective or a political perspective doesn't need to be a, a, a threat to your group or a threat to your core identity be somebody through whom you can understand more about the world, how different people think and value and perspective. Doesn't mean you need to agree with each other. Doesn't mean you need to like fall into some sort of moral relativism. Like everything is like equally unsure and we don't know. So like nothing matters. You do you, I do me. You can have real convictions and have thoughts about that. And you can respect somebody else who has different convictions and still love and be united to one another. That's what Jesus is building. And it can be really beautiful, really beautiful. But he knew it was going to be hard. In fact, not only did he know it was going to be hard, he knew it was going to get harder because he gave his disciples a mission to bring this good news of his kingdom beyond the borders of Israel to all nations. In the Great Commission before his resurrection, after his resurrection, before his ascension to the Father, he commissioned his disciples. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go make disciples all authority in heaven and on earth. I'm, I'm the king of all the nations, all of it. I have authority over everything on earth. I have authority over the heavenly realm. I have authority over spiritual powers of darkness in the heavenly realm and the authorities in the earthly realm. I'm the king of it all. So go to all the nations and make disciples. Help people learn to follow me. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's unity with God. And teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And I'm going to be with you all the way to the end. That's his mission. So he knew that this this kingdom that he had created and brought Israel and these different people into, it was about to make its way into places like Ephesus in Asia Minor. It was going to make its way into Corinth, where they worshiped the goddess Aphrodite. It was going to make its way to Philippi, where they worship Artemis. 
It was gonna make its way to all of these different places, like it's gonna make its way into Athens. It's gonna make its way into Crete, this island where there's all these kind of different thoughts and perspectives about a lot of things, and opinions about the Cretan people. It's gonna make its way all the way to Rome. There's gonna be Romans. There's gonna be actual, real Romans that are brought into a relationship and a community with Jewish people that have been dispersed to Rome, and they're gonna be a, a community where there's a Roman and a Greek and somebody from Galatia and, and a Jewish person that are gonna be in one family? Are you kidding me? That's the mission of God. He knew it was gonna be crazy. He knew that it was gonna be hard. And Jesus prayed for it. So here's our second observation, and it's simply this. Quarreling in the family of God is a major threat to the witness of the church. Quarreling in the family of God is a major threat to the witness of the church. Jesus knew that as he was pulling people into these communities, that there's gonna be a lot of debates. There's gonna be a lot of differences. Hey, do we need to follow all the kind of Jewish festivals, even if I'm a Roman? Jewish people are like, well, yeah, you're coming to like our Messiah, you should. And then Paul's like, ah, let's think about that. Let's just like do a little theology work and just think about that a little more. And so he writes letters like Galatians and Colossians to talk about stuff like that. Hey, these guys that are coming in, these, these Gentile men that are coming in, like to be a part of the Abrahamic covenant and receive those blessings, we had to get circumcised. Don't they have to get circumcised? This guy's like, no, please God, no, please God, no. Uh, please God, no. Uh, Paul's like, uh, nah, you know. Uh, but Timothy, let's do it for you. What? Um, weird theological side. Anyway, um, diversion. Um, so weird stuff, right? What, what, about, what about, do we worship on sa- Sabbath on Saturday still? Or should we like shift that to Sunday, right? Different opinions. What about food? Eat, like what about meat offered to idols? Like man, I wouldn't eat meat offered to Aphrodite. But somebody else is like, well, I mean, is, is that statue to Aphrodite anything? Like who cares? Everything's the Lord's. It's meat. Can't we just eat it? We bought it in the marketplace. I'm not worshiping Aphrodite. I'm just eating meat that I bought in the marketplace. Well, somebody else is like, yeah, but I used to worship Aphrodite. And that for me is like, I don't know. That I, I, feels like off to me. Well, what differences? You can read about that in Romans 14. Like, you can read about that in 1 Corinthians 11. Like, the, this is just there. There's differences, and they're all coming in here, and they're part of this new community. How are we going to do that? How are we going to build unity with all these differences of opinion and thought? And it was hard for them. It was hard. In fact, it was the, the pain was showing up in all the churches. I'm going to list a handful of churches. Most of these are letters from Paul. But this was also in letter from James, it's in letters from Peter, it's in letters from John, it's all over the New Testament. All the churches were struggling with quarreling. Look with me, 1 Corinthians, we'll have them up on the screen, chapter one, verse 10 and 11. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, that that doesn't mean you think the same about everything, it's about unity, that you come to one mind, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So Paul's in Ephesus. He's hanging out, doing ministry. God's on the move. And a lady named Chloe's like, shows up and is like, hey, I was recently in Corinth and it's not going great. Uh, Paul had started the church in Corinth. A lot of people had come to faith in Christ and his ministry there. And they were, there was divisions all over. And so Paul wrote them a letter to deal with that. It's called 1 Corinthians. It's in your Bible. It's about Divisions. We're going to spend a whole year in Corinthians starting in February, this February. We'll be in it for a year. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20. So clearly 1 Corinthians like, wasn't enough, um, so he had to write another letter. 
For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and you may find me not as you wish. Uh, Like, you're going to be fighting, and that's going to be frustrating, and it's not going to be pretty for any of us. So he says that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, disorder. Man, how much does that just describe the nature of the church today? It pained the heart of Paul. Philippians 4, verses 2 and 3. It's a church that's doing pretty well, pretty faithful. For I fear that perhaps, or sorry, uh, he says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Sinsky. Man, Paul's just name dropping. He's like, you guys are doing pretty good, except for you two ladies. What's going on? Um, <laughs> he says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Sinsky to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He's like, man, Yodia, Syntyche, we, we, we were working together, you, me, Clement, you guys, we were doing stuff, we were engaged, we were on one team, and what happened? What happened? You guys divided. And he's calling on the Philippian church to care about that issue and to call them to unity. Shows up again in 1 Timothy, Paul's writing to a young pastor, he talks about a specific person, 1 Timothy 6.4, talking about a specific person. He's puffed up with conceit, and he understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. Man, Paul's like calling people out. He's like, hey, these things are a threat to who we're called to be. Jesus prayed. It's like Paul had this clear sense that a passion of Jesus and one of the purposes of his crucifixion We read about this in his letter to the Ephesians that Jason talked about the first week. In Ephesians 2, it was not just to make us alive and reconcile us to God, but it's bring together people from different backgrounds and experiences into one new community. And Paul saw these divisions as a threat to the witness that Jesus had laid down his life to create for us. And it's hard. It's hard. It's all over the place. People from all these different backgrounds coming together with different perspectives, and it's hard for us. Some of you come from backgrounds that are really conservative values. Some of you come from backgrounds with really progressive values. Some of you carry them into this place. Some of you are reacting against and kind of moving away from aspects of your background. You all come in from California and from Dallas and from Texas, and you got a few natives in the room, and we like clash together, and we're like... Zach's a native Coloradoan. He's like, yo, the few and the proud native Coloradoans right here. <laughs> and so you got this, you got this like community where we're coming together like, okay, we have different backgrounds, experiences, perspectives, thoughts. Is it possible to, to be united with different opinions about a lot of significant things? It is, but it's hard. I mean, it's especially hard in the body of Christ. There's a book that um, I found really helpful. It's called Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church. Like that subtitle, disagreeing without dividing the church. Yes, please, Jesus, help us learn um, how to disagree without dividing the church. And in this book, they talk about the idea of the difficulty of d- disagreements inside the family of God. Listen to this. They say this the only thing more difficult than discussing Christian convictions in the public square is discussing them with fellow believers in the church. This may seem counterintuitive, but it's true. We may have more disagreements with non-believers, but our disagreements with fellow believers are more problematic and more emotionally charged. Outside the Christian community, one anticipates having biblical convictions contested or despised. Disagreement is unpleasant, but expected. We know our beliefs about Christ and morality are not broadly shared in the American public square. Therefore, we expect conflict and we're equipped for it, or at least, or at the very least, we know we should be. But when our personal convictions are contested by fellow church members, Everything changes. We feel attacked from behind. It feels both unexpected and wrong. 
We assume our biblical convictions will be shared by those sitting on either side of us in church. And if they doubt or deny our convictions, we don't experience it as mere difference of opinion, but rather as a violation of an unspoken agreement. We're not merely intellectually challenged by a new idea or puzzled by a different viewpoint. We are hurt and offended. It's hard in the body of Christ because you have this sense that we agree at this most foundational level that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that Jesus is Lord and God has raised him from the dead. We like stand there on these like core biblical convictions. And from that space and from the word of God, we come up with these other convictions, human beings created in the image of God and human beings that are worthy of value and honor and dignity. And then you start kind of stepping into, so that means this about this community. It means this about this community. And these people I saw that were hurting, we should care most about this. And somebody's like, well, I see this. And we start in our life as we move away from the the core conviction and extrapolate the the moral values and, and the mandates and our kind of like policy decisions and how we behave around those values. We start getting to all sorts of different ideas about how to work that out. And so we see some disagreement way down the line here as like a violation of the most fundamental convictions that we've built our identity upon. We think if you disagree with me down there, then it must, what does that mean about my core convictions? You're you're threatening aspects of my core identity. And so it's hard. It's hard to navigate these things. But God has designed us to work through this. And we as a community that's that's decided we're we're following Jesus, we have this, this call to learn how to do this. And the New Testament is built around this. Most of the letters are dealing with issues related to quarreling, divisions, and dissensions. And Paul taking the gospel of Jesus and bringing it to bear on how do we love one another and build a kind of unity amidst those differences. So this is our last observation, that the love of Christ empowers us to love and value brothers and sisters with different perspectives and opinions. It's the love of Jesus displayed in his death on the cross for our sins, his gracious work to bring us back into relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, his work to move towards us while we were still enemies, while we were opposed to his rule, opposed to his reign, doing our own thing. He saw us and he moved towards us with love, sacrificial love, humility, and compassion to bring us into a family. That love has the power to help us become the people that can actually love and even value people with different perspectives and opinions. I want to read a few passages that just show up in some of Paul's letters, all of which Paul is building on the gospel and taking implications from the gospel into this space of unity. Philippians chapter 2, 14 and 15, same place where he called out Yodia and Syntyche. He says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Yes, the the, the environment around us might be divisive and vitriolic. They might polarize and villainize people with different perspectives. They might create echo chambers and banter back and forth on Facebook and on Instagram and social media. They might create comment sections and get angry with someone in their small group for thinking about a different situation or situation differently. They might do that in the world, but he says, not for you. Don't do these things with disputing. You're supposed to shine as light. You're supposed to be distinct. You're supposed to be different. Let's do it different. We can do it different because of the love of Christ. 2 Timothy 2.14, Paul says to Timothy, remind them of these things. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. I, I'm like hearing this from Paul as a, as a pastor. I'm like, I just, like, please don't quarrel about words. 
Don't hop on social media and tear down people that you don't know, that you can't sit there and see their face and hear their experience and learn what their background is. Don't do that. It ruins its hearers. It is ruining our ability for healthy, compassionate, kind, civil discourse. It is unhealthy. Even if it's normal in culture, it is not the way we're called to do it. Engage with love and compassion. Look at what he says in Titus chapter 3, or 2 Timothy, sorry, 2.23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. It's like the cesspool, this breeding ground for fights and just villainizing one another and just back-talking and missing each other like ships in the night. Have nothing to do with it, Paul says. Titus 3.2, to another pastor, he says, remind them to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling. Listen to this. To be gentle. To be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all people. Gentleness is not cowardice. Gentleness is Christ-likeness. He defined himself and described himself as one who is gentle and lowly at heart. He was not antagonizing. He didn't villainize. He's gentle and lowly. So Paul says to Titus, remind them to be gentle and have perfect courtesy toward all people. Titus chapter 3, 9 through 11, Paul gets more severe in this. He says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. It's a total waste of time. As for a person who stirs up division, listen to this, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He's self-condemned. There's somebody that's just always stirring up division and contention and so, man, hey, Love you. Like, man, Jesus has shown us a better way. Keep doing it, keep doing it. Like, man, we need to, like, this isn't healthy. It's not a healthy situation. It's not a healthy situation. Romans 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in the flesh, welcome him, but don't quarrel over opinions. Other translations say disputable matters. And what they're talking about is the meat offered to idols. Hey, there's different opinions about whether you should eat the meat or not eat the meat. This is disputable. Different opinions. Don't fight about it. It's all right. It's secondary. You can have your personal convictions. He talks about that. Like whatever the Lord has put in your heart to do, like have conviction about it. But you don't need to fight about it. This is God's design for us. That we can be a people that show both conviction and compassion. So to have love and unity is not to water down your convictions or it's not to fall into moral relativism or this kind of idea of relative truth. Like you do you, your truth is yours, my truth is mine. That's not real. That doesn't even, that doesn't even make sense. What that's getting at is your own confidence around your ability to gather the truth. Like, you should have some humility about that. You should have some humility about your assurity that you see it most clearly, that you're the one who, from your perspective, your situation, your background, you, you won the lottery, the, the epistemological lottery, and you sat in the space where God gave you the clearest vantage point on reality, and like, well done. Uh, that's, that's an arrogant perspective. But that but kind of embracing what, what's called epistemological humility or this like humility about what you know doesn't mean that you can't know things and it doesn't mean you can't have convictions. You can just have some humility around those convictions. And there's a spectrum, right? So these guys in this book define a conviction as this. Here's what they say a conviction is. Convictions are firmly held moral or religious beliefs that guide our beliefs, actions, or choices. Having convictions is healthy. I have lots of them. There's also a spectrum about the way I hold those convictions. 
and there ought to be for the way we think about it. And so they offer this thing called a spectrum of conviction. We'll put it on the screen here. And I think it's just a helpful tool to think about uh, the way we think about this. Can we put up that, uh, that graphic? There it is. The spectrum of conviction. On the left, you have confessional beliefs like, um, like this. Humans are created in the image of God. That's crystal clear biblical conviction. It's in Genesis 1. Human beings are created in the image of God. From that, you can kind of like take this next step into this moral mandate. As such, every human being is worthy of dignity, value, and honor. We're taking a step, we're building on it, but it's a pretty reasonable step. All Christians are gonna believe that humans are created in the image of God. That next step into these kind of moral mandates is, is a step, but we're, we're mostly together there. <clears throat> then you have core values, and this is the place where your own perspective, your experiences, what you've seen, what you've felt, is gonna start kind of stacking. What, what are the core areas where you feel that being breached? Where do you feel the needs for that? Where do you, where do you see like the, the pain? What, what experiences and backgrounds and perspectives and opportunities and vantage point has given you has actually shaped the way you stack your values around that? So you might think about immigration issues. How do we love and care for our migrant neighbors? I think that's a really important thing. How do we think about that? We have migrant families that are here in our church community. Care about that. By seeing those needs, it can create compassion in your heart and say, how do we love and serve and learn from and grow together with? You might think of issues in the history of our nation with racism and injustice, and that might be something that just grabs your heart, and that feels like the clearest, most important thing. You might think about issues with the unborn and children and the, and the, kind of the, the rate at which children are aborted in this country, the amount of people and the amount of image bearers whose lives are ended in that space. You might have been in a position where that was your experience, and so you identify and you hear churches talk about issues of abortion, and you feel the pain that so many people carry and the shame that people feel, and you feel a pain and a longing for compassion towards those who have experienced that. You might have kind of people that you've watched kind of fall off the, the wagon and this kind of like fall off this kind of far liberal ditch where they've abandoned and deconstructed their faith and you feel like all things that feel like kind of left-leaning are this dangerous slippery slope. You might also have neighbors who have ideologies and experiences that make you have compassion and sympathy for some of those perspectives and insights. Now our values just start like what we see and the way we think about it starts changing. And so what we prioritize begins to change. Now we're starting to get to, we have some differences now. What looms largest in your mind, your heart, and your values? Now we have some differences. Then you get all the way over to like policies. Like how do you think about policies related to abortion? How do you think about upstream issues that contribute to that? How do you think about legal issues? How do you think about the love of that person right there? How do you think about all these different things? You might have a different opinion about what to do about that value and how it should shape your behavior. Same thing on all of those issues. You might have different perspective on how to work it out. And we start disagreeing way down here on this kind of guidelines for conduct and we feel like we're being threatened at a core conviction level. Like how could you even be a Christian if you didn't vote the way I voted on that? Man, we're way, we're way down here. Like have we ever taken the time to like sort through, hey, wh where do we go kind of in different directions? For, a lot, for most of us, it's not likely at, at this kind of deep core conviction space. And as people in the body of Christ, we had to learn to be able to do this, map our convictions and say, hey, I have these convictions, but I'm working them into some things. To me, this totally makes sense, and it feels like it follows logically. But for somebody else, they land in a different place. Can I love and learn from that person and maybe see something and understand something I didn't understand before? It doesn't mean you have to agree. Having humility and compassion and love doesn't mean you have to agree with that person. You can maintain your perspective and you can actually feel strongly about it. 
but you can still love and respect somebody else without treating them as like the like anathema, like a cursed person for not voting the way you did or thinking the way you think or addressing an issue the way you address it or prioritizing the things that you prioritize. And when we can get there and start understanding that, we can actually start showing love and all of a sudden those differences, instead of being a threat, really become an asset. And when we can actually learn to value and lean into those spaces with love, with humility, seeking to understand others, caring about others, having compassion for people with different experiences and backgrounds, then we can start showing the love of Christ in ways that are stunning and beautiful. Then the world will know There's something different. There's a kind of love. There's a kind of unity. They don't even think the same. There are people in that church that think the way I think about that issue and people that think way different about it and they can relate to each other and love one another and be in a small group together. What is it about you guys? Give me a reason for the hope that's in you. And all of a sudden, the prayer of Jesus is coming to its fruition. The world's gonna know. The world's gonna know something about the love of Christ, something about who he is and what he's done to come into this world, to lay down his life, to take distant and divided people and to bring them together into a new kind of family, a family that Jesus is building through his blood and through his resurrection. May God help us to be that kind of a people. May he help us to learn to show love and unity to people with different opinions, diverse backgrounds and experiences, that he'd get glory and the world to get joy. Let's pray. Jesus, would you help us as a community? We need you, oh, we need you. We need you, Holy Spirit, to soften our heart. There are people, there are people that I'm sure for many of us are harder, uh, harder to understand, harder to have compassion for, harder to sympathize with, but you have this incredible compassion. So would you give us your heart? Father, just like you love the Son, would that kind of love make its way deeper and deeper into our heart? Would you help us to know the height, the depth, the width, and the breadth of your love for us and be eager to show humility, compassion, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, grace? Would you help us to learn from other people? Would you help us to have humility about the way we see things and think that we'd actually grow and be willing to be challenged, be willing to have our ideas challenged, that we could grow and learn more? Would you help us to be willing to also hold fast when we feel called to hold fast to our convictions while loving and caring about people with different convictions and backgrounds? We need you for all of this. We want the world to know more of your love, more of your beauty, more of your goodness, and we need you for it, King Jesus. So we pray these things in the name of Jesus because of his power, because of his love, because of his resurrection life that works among us even now. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.